And so uh, let me begin by showing you a picture that I really enjoy. This picture here, uh, it's my brother-in-law, Mitch. We've just finished a bike ride. I like this picture for two reasons. One reason I like the picture is it's like one of the only photographs I have where it looks like I've been doing something marginally athletic, right? The second region, reason is just my affection for, uh, for Mitch. Uh, they, they, uh, much of Chris's family still lives in Northern California, and so about once a year we travel out there. I often take my bike with me, and so uh, Mitch and I from time to time have had the privilege of going out on a bike ride. What I like about biking with Mitch is that we're at the same level. You know what I mean by that? Uh, I'm, I'm like good for 20, 25 miles at a very moderate pace, and Mitch, he's good for like 20, 25 miles at a very moderate pace. We're about the same, we're about the same level. And I mention that because I do have some people in my life that like do 50 miles before breakfast, right? And so that's like, that's not me, that's not me at all. But in athletics, you kinda, you kinda get an idea of how you measure up. And so, uh, yeah, I have a bike, but I, I know I'm, I'm not that guy. But I also know I'm so not that guy. It's somewhere in this vast space in between. So when I talk about you know, measuring up and kind of what level you are, uh, there's an image that we're going to use today is the image of a ladder, the image of a ladder. And by this, I just don't mean athletics. I mean, when we talk about income, you know, what we earn, the expression we use is income level right? Income level. And so you kind of look at a kind of like a ladder as a measuring saying, okay, uh, probably chances are a whole lot of people make less than you. Chances are a whole lot of people make more than you, but you kind of get an idea of income level. And it's academics as well. You kind of see yourself at an, at an academic level, but this can change. I've talked to people over the years who were, were like the valedictorian types. We're used to being the smartest person in the class, but then graduated from high school and went to a leading academic university. Think of, a, I don't know, a, a Harvard-type place. And suddenly, they're looking around the classroom, and they realize everybody sitting around them was also the smartest person in their class. And so it can be jarring to have viewed yourself kind of toward the top, and then comparatively, you find yourself in the middle. So. Think about levels, think about how you measure up. And the particular ladder we get to look at today and talk about today is the ladder of goodness, how you measure up in goodness. So what do you mean by goodness? Uh, kind of our behavior in living a forgiving, patient, kind, loving, serving others, focused life. And we get to talk today about two things, how we think we measure up, but I think more importantly, how does God view us? Okay, what level do you think you're at? And what level do you think the God of the universe thinks you're at? So this thing about leveling up. Important conversation, important conversation for people who are brand new to the spiritual journey. And all the time at Ada Bible Church, we have people here who are explorers, Kind of like, hey, I haven't put the whole thing together yet, but I'm learning and growing, and I find this is a welcoming uh, atmosphere, but I'm just trying to put the pieces together. If that describes you today, I hope just today is huge, because what I want to attempt to do today is as clearly as possible, I want to describe what it means 
to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian in the simplest terms uh, I, can, I can describe. And so those of you who are like early in the journey, explorers, my prayer for you, sincere prayer for you, is that our gracious God would open your eyes and that he would open your heart to what he wants to whisper into your life today. But there's an entirely different group I have in mind in this conversation today, and it's people with old faith. Say, Jeff, I've been a Christian for decades. Listen, it's possible to wake up one day to discover that the faith we have is not a faith worth having. Something is cold, something is dead, something's asleep. It's possible for there to be something incredibly basic But it gets lost along the way. It gets forgotten along the way. And my hope is for many of us, either this very morning or over the course of this series, that you find something awakened. You find something revived and restored. It's my hope that today in this series of conversation that many of us find ourselves reconverted and awakened, revived, and restored in our faith. And so uh, today, conversation number one in what I think is going to be a very important series uh, called Gospel Change. Uh, I've broken down our conversation into three different parts, three parts today. And part number one, I just want to call the ladder, the ladder. And it's kind of like that ladder, that goodness ladder. And so I wanted to, I wanted to scribble some things. So I uh, had this kind of like this ladder drawn here. And remember the, the two questions, kind of like on this ladder of goodness, two questions, where do you see yourself? And second question, maybe more important, is where do you think God views you in this ladder of goodness? And so, man, Jeff, I, I don't know where I'd put myself on that. So let's take it, take it kind of category by category. Uh, Jesus is teaching once, and some religious leaders come up, and one of the religious leaders asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Of, of all of the rules and expectations about there, what is like rule number one? And Jesus said, oh, the most important command, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then he said, number two, number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is what Jesus said is like up there toward the top, loving my neighbor as myself. And so I go, well, where do I put myself on that one? I go, yeah, yeah I don't know, maybe somewhere just north of the middle. But then I think of those last two words. Jesus didn't say love your neighbor. He said love your neighbor, what? Next two words. As yourself. And then I go, oops. Meaning like I look out for other people like I'm looking out for me. I'm too self-focused. I I mean, I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something. I've got a mission and it's my mission. And I can just get motoring and I can like be blind to the needs and the concerns of others. So love your neighbor. I think I'm pretty high. Love your neighbor. Just love them like you love you. Look out for them like you're looking out for you. And I'm going, oh my goodness, that drops the grade considerably. But what if it's not just stuff we do? What if it's, uh, what if it's our attitude? Because it's possible to do something really kind with a lousy attitude. I've never experienced this personally, but I've heard about it happening to others. Actually, in our home, I am married, Chris is my wife, and from time to time, Chris will recruit me for a household project. Yeah, I know. And sometimes this household project that she recruits me for, I find highly inconvenient and really, really difficult and challenging, like hanging a picture. 
And when she recruits me for this household project, often I will be doing something that is like really important and strategic, like watching a World War II documentary. <laughs> Again. And so sometimes I help, but it's kind of like, with, now I know exactly, you're judging me, aren't you? You're saying, Jeff, I don't know where you would put yourself and I don't know where God sees you, but we're putting you right down here and you call yourself a preacher. All I'm saying is this, is sometimes we do something that's good and we do something that's kind, but not with the best attitude along the way. And I go, what if on this goodness ladder, what if it's not just what I do, what if it's, what if it's how I am? Meaning um, walking through life with kind of a, an undercurrent of irritability. What if I gotta factor that in too? And is what if it's not just what I do? What if it's what if it's my words? What if it's the stuff I say? Saying things to people that are unkind or perhaps not entirely true. Saying things about people that are unkind or not entirely true. I mean, when I factor all this stuff in, if, if I'm honest and I'm self-reflective and I'm candid, I just go, I'm nowhere near the top, not even close. Now, word of advice, if you want to improve your score on this quite a little bit, don't just factor in the good stuff that you're doing, also factor in the good stuff that someday you intend to do. That'll help the score go up. Say, no, 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 I'm not actually doing this, but I plan on doing it, and your score will go up quite a bit. Include the stuff you're thinking about doing. So uh, who put me onto this, believe it or not, was a, a comedian some years back uh, named Louis C.K., and Louis C.K. was talking about a flight that he was on, going in, and he sit down, uh, perched there in his first-class seat, and then walking past him was uh, someone in full military uniform, probably about to be deployed, and Louis C.K. said, it occurred to him, you know what I ought to do? I ought to give him my first-class seat, and I ought to go back there and sit in coach in his seat. And then Louis C.K. pauses and goes, I didn't actually do it, but I thought about it. And then he says, I thought better of myself because the idea had occurred to me. Now, this is the kind of game that we can play. If we can't measure ourselves by our goodness, then let's measure ourselves by the good we thought about doing, the good we think about doing, or the good we someday plan to do. All I'm saying here is this. In our reflective, honest candid moments, I think most of us would have the courage to say, just Jeff, uh, I'm not anywhere close to the top. Nowhere near the top, not even close. Now, there's two questions. How do you view yourself and how do you think God views you? I, I know, I know exactly where the God of the universe would put me on this ladder. I mean, exactly. So I look at this ladder, and I have to answer the question, how does God view me? God views me, God views me right here, at the very top of the ladder. 
You think, have you forgotten what you told us about your stinky attitude and helping with pathetic jobs around the house? How can God see you at the top of the ladder? That's part two of our conversation. Part two of our conversation is something called the great transfer. God can view me at the top of the ladder because of something called the great transfer. So, uh, there's just an image of the, the crucifixion that we have here, the crucifixion of Jesus and there's four words that I've attached to this, and the four words are, someone took my place. Can you say those four words with me? Ready? Someone took my place. At our campuses too, and I want you to say it one more time, but this time I want you to emphasize the word my. Ready? Someone took my place. The story of the crucifixion is that when Jesus sacrifices himself, he's... He's paying off debts that weren't his. He's paying off debts that were mine, and he was paying off debts that were yours. Someone took my place. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples that followed him around for three years. One of them, his name was Peter. And Peter like, listened to the teachings, watched the miracles, witnessed, was a witness to the resurrected Jesus after the crucifixion. And as he was writing a generation later to newer Christians, this is the way Peter described the crucifixion. This is what he wrote. Uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, the suffering of Christ was the, what's the next word? The what? The righteous for who? For who? For the unrighteous to bring you to God. This is how Peter described the great transfer. Jesus stepping in for you and paying off debts that were yours. Now, Jesus, the Son of God, perfect in his goodness. And that word unrighteous there. What we're talking about here is our incapability to measure up, which, by the way, is one of the, one of the words that's used for sin in our Bible is uh, missing, missing it, missing the mark, uh, shooting for something and not even, not even coming, coming close. It has to do with this measuring up thing. And so Peter described the transfer as this, the righteous one, Jesus, uh, taking the place of the unrighteous one. Those last words are critical, to bring you to God. See, because most religions, the focus of most religions, it, the question is, how can you find God? This is a different story. This is the God who came down to find you. Not how can I find God. This is the God who came down to find you. And some of you, the, the lights are coming on right now, and maybe for the first time in your life, you're just going, I never knew that. You know, I saw a picture of the crucifixion at my grandma's house, people with a crucifix jewelry. I never understood that that was what happened there, that Jesus came to take my place. And there's some of you going, I know, Jeff, come on, I know, I know, I know, I know. Jesus died for our sins. That's the transfer. My sins got transferred to Jesus. No. That's half the transfer. Half the transfer is that your sins got transferred to Jesus. Now, in preparation for this series, uh, one of the books that I read is a book called How People Change. And the author, <laughs> the author talks about his wedding day. 
And the author writes about his financial situation before his wedding day. Uh, he says he had thousands of dollars in debt. He wasn't making a strong income. He was working for a student ministry at the time, and he was still in seminary. And so there were more like outgoing expenses uh, to pay for his like postgraduate work. And so he goes, he goes, I had thousands of dollars in debt, and I had no workable plan to pay it off. Fortunately, the woman that he was engaged to had been working faithfully, had been working consistently, had been saving a bunch of money. So this is what he writes about his wedding day. The day we said I do was a very significant for, um, for many reasons. Among them was the fact that on their wedding day, when they said I do, came husband and wife, the fact that my debt became her debt and my ass her assets became my assets. It was a great financial deal for me, but not for her. My debts became her debts, and her assets became his assets. And this is what I want to explain as the double transfer. So tried to show this, try to show this visually or graphically, just so it we can latch onto it and it can sink in a little bit better and maybe stay with us. Just uh, the great transfer. This is me and Jesus, and we are not alike. I have this perpetual propensity to fall short. Jesus, son of God, came for us, never fell short, perfect in his goodness. So under me, I just want to put the word sin, which is falling short thing, and under Jesus, goodness. And I just don't mean basically good. I mean total, total perfection in goodness. Now, most of us are in contact with the first part of the transfer. The first part of the transfer is that my sin gets transferred to Jesus. That's what happens on the cross. My sin got transferred to his account. What often gets lost is the second part of the transfer where Jesus' goodness gets transferred to me. That's the double transfer. My sin transferred to Jesus, his goodness transferred to me. This is why God can see me at the top of the ladder. Because Jesus' goodness got transferred to me when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me in my failed imperfection. He views me in the perfection and goodness of Jesus. Jesus' goodness transferred to me. By the way, earlier in our service, we sang this. Opening song here today, old song called, uh, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. Like all other ground is like quicksand. All other ground is sinking sand. There was that one lyric that went like this. Dressed in his righteousness alone, God sees you as faultless. Poetically, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. What, what it's talking about there is that you get clothed, dressed, clothed in the goodness of Christ. When God views you, once you've trusted, fully trusted in Christ, he sees you at the top of the ladder. Now, top of the ladder is new language, and it's an image that I'm using today. But if you're around church people for any length of time, you'll probably hear somebody talk about their 
their position in Christ. You go, what in the world does that mean? That's what they're talking about, top of the ladder, clothed in Jesus' goodness, their position in Christ. If you're around church people for long enough, you might hear one talk about their identity in Christ. You go, what in the world does that mean, your identity in Christ? That's what they're talking about, clothed with the goodness of Christ, that when the Father sees them, he sees them in the perfection of Christ, dressed in his righteousness alone. If you want the big five-syllable theological word, the word that's used is justification. Justification. Justification is the fact that God the Father pronounces sinful people just, righteous, because of the goodness of Christ that they get wrapped in, clothed in, and justification. The theology of justification. My friends, justification is not supposed to be some dusty theology buried in a theological tome. It's supposed to be a love story to get pulled into, to respond to. But I can tell you one thing. If you wake up one day and discover that you are at the top of the ladder, one thing is for certain, you've got to go, I didn't earn this. You're not at the top of the ladder because of your achievement. You're at the top of the ladder because of Jesus' achievement. <laughs> You're not at the top of the ladder because of what you've accomplished. You're at the top of the ladder because of what Jesus has accomplished. This is not a position and an identity that can be earned. It is a gift that must be received. So uh, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the leaders of the Jesus community, many of their letters are in our Bible, the New Testament of our Bible, and they attempted to explain in different language that you didn't earn this, that it, it's God's gift to you, that it just has to be received. And so one of those writers is uh, the uh, Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a Jesus group in the city of Ephesus, which is a major metropolitan area in the first century. And so he's trying to explain kind of like how they got into the family, why they're at the top of the ladder. And so I just want to read two verses to you, and uh, just, uh, I just want to ask you to absorb these. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes to these dear people, he says, but, like when you were lost, when you had like a no spiritual heartbeat, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. It was like CPR of the soul, even when we were like dead in our transgressions, another word for sin. And he goes, it is by grace that you have been rescued. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. A conversation about grace is a conversation about that part of God, that aspect of God's character that is wildly generous. To speak of the grace of God, to speak of the generosity of God, he just, in his very core, gives and gives and gives. Notice how these terms kind of like, just kind of like cascade one, or the, one after the other. Because of his great love, God who is mercy rich made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace that you have been saved. His love, his mercy, his grace. It's why we try to mention again and again at Ada Bible Church, just as a reminder, God doesn't love you because you're good. 
He loves you because he's good. And so to come to Jesus means in one way or another to say, I have come to believe. <laughs> I have come to believe that he loved me. I've come to believe that he came for me. I've come to believe that he suffered for me. I've come to believe that this is not a position I can earn. It is only love that can be received. It is only grace that can be received. It's in one way or another to go, I don't enter the family. I don't get to the top of the ladder through my goodness. It was through his goodness. And to believe deep, deep, deeply believe that it's his goodness, his mercy, his love, his sacrifice that rescues and restores. And when you enter deep trust in his work, my friends, you are at the top of the ladder. Infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure. Listen, it's my hope. Um, it's my hope that some months from now, at one of our campuses or at a lake somewhere uh, in the area, in a baptism service, that someone, maybe a number of people, would say, I remember the weekend. It was a sunshine-filled weekend in February, and we started this series called Gospel Change, and for the first time in my life, I got it. For the first time in my life, I realized that my rescue was something I had to receive, not something that can be earned, and I remember the day I put my trust in Jesus' goodness and not my own. All I'm saying is this, today, maybe... maybe <laughs> Maybe today is your day to take that step of I trust you. I trust your goodness and not mine. A question that more than a few of you should be thinking or asking is, well, that's awesome, you know. God sees you at the top of the ladder. But Jeff, what about this stuff? I mean, you're still supposed to grow, right? You're, you're still supposed to change, right? What exactly is the relationship between this and this, which is like growth and change? What, what is the connection between that and that? Uh, this is part three of our conversation. Part three of our conversation, we're just calling gospel change. Gospel change. Now, there's three expressions. Three expressions, there, there could have been more, but I chose these three, and they are uh, infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure. If Jesus came for you and there's this dual transfer, double transfer thing, the great transfer, where your sins are transferred to him and his goodness is transferred to you, and you find yourself at the top of the ladder clothed in Jesus' goodness, I'm telling you, you are infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure. Let's, uh, okay, I'll play. Let's read those three together. Ready? Infinitely loved, 
infinitely treasured, infinitely secure. Now, here is the question. A 14-year-old young woman who comes to believe that she is infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, and infinitely secure because of the work of the God of the universe, how does that change the way she interacts with people in her early high school, late middle school? 57-year-old man who comes to understand, infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure, what does that change in the way he interacts, in the way he reacts in his relationships? What should this do to us? And if I could write one word about the connection between this, which is my identity and my position, this thing about being clothed, top of the ladder thing, and this, which is growth areas and areas of change, the most critical word is the word results. That is, the change down here is a result of the identity up here. It is the result, it's not the cause. If we look at it as causal, we go, if I change enough, then God will accept me. If I love my neighbor as myself, then I will be accepted by God. No, 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 it's not the cause, it's the result. Because you are clothed in Christ, because you are infinitely treasured, infinitely loved, infinitely secure, then a result of that is that we begin to change in our reactions, in our inner reactions. So over and over and over again, the writers, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, point to the connection between what we have here and how we relate here. Over and over and over, these two things get tied together as the result of being loved, treasured, and secure. So I, I want to do a quick flyby of like four different areas where you see this new position leading to new behavior. So uh, hang on, because you're going to be hitting these fast. One is family. One is family, where husbands are instructed. Husbands, what? One word. Husbands, do what? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice how they're connected. Now, in the first century, Roman Greek era, that you would marry as a business strategy. I mean, getting married is like a business decision because you'd, you'd want to connect to a family with better opportunity that would elevate your status. So often you got married as a business opportunity. And this would have been mind-blowing back in the day. Husbands, treasure your wives. Cherish your wives. Love your wives. Why? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Treasure and cherish your wife because you are treasured and you are cherished. And out of that ocean of being loved, treasured, and secure... Love the person you've made your marriage vows to. Again, these are, these are connected, how we've been loved and how we loved. The second area is forgiveness. In that same book, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, uh, we get these instructions. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. It could be just forgive each other. Stop. It doesn't do that. Forgiving each other just as in Christ, God what? Forgave it past tense. Uh, why should I cancel his debt? Because somebody canceled mine. And so forgive each other, and it goes back just as 
God in Christ, wrapped in Christ, clothed in Christ, forgave you. It connects our position, our new position, and our new behavior. Area number three, just a map here. Jerusalem's in the lower right-hand corner. Corinth is in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, Jerusalem, there was a major famine in the first century. Bunch of Jesus community, Jesus followers in the city of Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul starts to make his rounds in the Mediterranean world to motivate Jesus communities in other parts of the world to give to a famine relief offering that will then be sent to the city of Jerusalem for these people in extreme hardship. And so uh, one of the cities that Paul hit up for this famine relief offering was in Corinth, up in the Afghan corner. And they said, oh man, we are so gonna help with this, we're all in. And then they didn't do anything. This was a promise they didn't deliver on. So the Apostle Paul has to try to find a way to motivate them, and it's interesting, he doesn't shame them, he doesn't guilt them, he doesn't even go, look, this is a matter of integrity, you need to keep your word. He doesn't do that. What he does is he pulls them back to the generosity of God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is what he says, for you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might find yourselves at the top of the ladder, might become rich. He came low for you to bring you up. Paul is motivating their financial generosity by pointing the back to the generosity of God is expressed through Jesus. Man, we need to remember that. Whenever we feel this nudge to become financially generous people, we need to remember something. We are never making the first move. This is already a conversation underway. So you see where this is going here. Husbands, love your wives because you've been loved. Uh, forgive each other because you, you've been forgiven. Express generosity because you've experienced generosity. One last area, area number four, is just the area of love. Uh, follow God's example, therefore, as... Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This behavior of loving flows out of having been loved. When, you, when, you, when we realize that we are at the top of the ladder, infinitely loved, infinitely treasured, infinitely secure, it can unleash, and love here is described as sac sacrificial activity. I mean, it generally, to love well, it costs, it costs time, and it, it's a sacrifice of attention. These are the result. This, here we go. This is gospel change. It's not change in order to get something from God. It's change because you've received something from God. It is not change in order to earn. Which, quite frankly, my friends, when we turn into earners, we can be self-righteous, condescending to other people that aren't measuring up. When we can turn into earners, we can start to hide if we're depending on our own successes, we could minimize our failures and not be honest with ourselves. We can be blind 
And there is something about loving out of the love that we've received that is incredibly freeing. It is both the motivation and the empowering to love others. So one takeaway today, and I think this is really going to be tough for many of you. I think one big takeaway from today is this. Will you allow yourself to be loved? Will you allow yourself? Will you let God love you? Quite frankly, for a number of reasons, wounds from the past, desire to earn everything, whatever it is, we can hold God's love at bay. We can keep God at a distance. In this model of growth, gospel change, you have to be a receiver before you're a giver. What would it look like for you to excel in the art of being loved by God? So that that can cascade down into very complicated relationships. The letter that Paul wrote to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus is six chapters long. All the commands are in chapters four, five, and six. I think the husbands, forgive each other, walk in the way of love. It's all in chapters four, five, and six. Chapters one, two, and three, no commands, no instructions, no lifestyle issues in chapters one, two, and three. All Paul does in chapters one, two, and three is says, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember who you are, remember that you're at the top of the ladder because of the goodness of Christ. And so he wraps up that third chapter before he launches into the behavioral stuff by praying for this group that he's writing to and telling them what he's asking God for, for them. And Paul's prayer, he said, I just pray should be able to grasp how much God loves you. This is the way he worded it. I pray that you would be able to grasp how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. <laughs> I pray that you would grasp it. I pray that you would get it, even if you can't ever fully get it. That was his prayer. I pray that you would be able to grasp just how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. Because when we allow ourselves to be loved and when we receive that love, it can lead, it can lead to gospel change. It can begin to transform us one day at a time. And so uh, let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and also at our campuses. And I want to ask that for you. And I want to ask it for me. Gracious God, may we be able to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep your love is for us.
may we get this. And may we get it so deeply that it begins to change us one day at a time. May you know, may you receive, may you accept the love that God holds out for you. I ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord who came for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.